All right, guys, we're continuing where we left off in lesson two of part one in the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum, Roman numeral three, the martyrdom of Stephen, Acts 7. And um, I know in the email that I sent you all this week, the goal was to get through Roman numeral four. I don't know if that's going to be accomplished today. We're not in any hurry to get through this curriculum. We want to make sure we pine as much um, of the details as we can from Scripture and from this curriculum so that we can... Um, really get as much out of it as we can. So uh, we'll just see what happens today. And if we don't get all the way through both Roman numerals, that's fine. We'll just keep going next week. But um, with that in mind, uh, I do need a volunteer to read our verse of focus for this lesson. It's Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It's right there at the beginning of the lesson. So even if you don't even have your Bible open, which you should have open at this time. Uh, you can find it right there in your workbook. Acts 1-8. Can I get somebody to read that for us? Ellie, thank you. Um, I'll go ahead and pray. And Ellie, when I'm done praying, you can read that verse and we'll jump right in. Let's pray. God, as we just heard uh, Lisa share from the ICR devotional, you are the creator with your son and your Holy Spirit. And even something as ordinary as a pickle can show your your glory your wisdom your creativity and father how much more so is that manifested in us uh, complex creatures from from the the smallest cell all the way to the bodily systems that keep us alive you have orchestrated all of those things for your own glory and to testify about your character. Lord, I pray we would be those who continually remind ourselves of the splendor of your character, the wisdom that you have that is unparalleled by anything in the universe. And God, may those reminders ultimately lead us into worshiping you, which is what we're here to do today. Father, we're here to worship you during this time of Bible study. God, we ask that your spirit would Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand the truths we're going to be discussing so that we're changed as a result of these studies, not just gaining head knowledge, uh, which can puff us up, Lord, but, Lord, that uh, the, the knowledge that we gain would make us more like Christ, which ultimately will help us to model his character in the different areas of life that you've entrusted to us. Father, for those of us who have yet to go to corporate worship, I pray that this time would be a means of preparing our heart to worship you in spirit and in truth. For those who've already been, Father, I just ask that this would be the capstone on a great Lord's Day uh, and that they would be encouraged richly as they begin uh, a new week to serve you wherever you've called them. God, we thank you for this time. We pray for your blessing upon our study and may our thoughts and our words and our attitudes be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Ellie, Acts 1 8. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Very good. So, what, just by way of review, um, if I sound like a broken record, that's a good thing because I'm trying to help you guys remember uh, basic and primary truths throughout each of our sections that we're covering. And this is one of them. What was the purpose for which the book of Acts was written based on that verse that Ellie just read? What have we talked about the last several weeks about the purpose for Acts being written? Okay, right. Okay, so, so Acts was written to, you said witness, so to bear witness to the spreading of what? The gospel. The gospel. And, and how did the gospel spread based on that verse? Yeah, so really what the book of Acts is doing, it's a microcosm of the Great Commission. It's showing how the gospel was first proclaimed by the apostles and the earliest disciples in Jerusalem. And then as the book of Acts progresses, it tracks the the spreading of that gospel message to um, Judea, Samaria, and then the phrase to the remotest parts of the world, um, that's a phrase to the nations, to the Gentiles, to those who are outside the realm of Israel. And that passage was fulfilled in one sense by the end of the book of Acts because we see how that gospel spread throughout those parts, but even so, over the past 2,000 years, the gospel has continued to extend 
to the nations, to those who were so far outside of the known world during that period of human history that they would have had no idea that that message would have reached the millions and billions of people it's reached over the past 2,000 years. We're still seeing that latter part of Acts 1-8 being fulfilled today because there are still parts of the world who have never heard the gospel. And before Christ returns, there will be at least one Christian from every tongue, every people group, and every nation in world history. God will redeem for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, we're going to look a little bit about a little bit at that um, when we look at Revelations 4 and 5, um, either today or tomorrow, just depending on how far we get. But with that in mind, by way of review, I want us to look at that. Um, I guess it's not technically in your workbook. It's in mine. Um, I, I do have some things to read from Buznitz. I do have a lot of questions for you all today. I'm glad that Lisa brought us some donuts and some pickles to get you guys uh, awake and energetic. So I'm hoping that you guys will will be excited for the questions we're going to be looking into this morning. Um, Buznitz notes here that chapters 2 through 7 of the book of Acts describe the growth of the early church in Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, Luke identifies the primary features of the first community of believers. So we do need a volunteer to read Acts 2, 42 to 47. And um, if you're not volunteering to read that, you will need to have your Bible open so you can track along with it. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Anyone want to read that? Michael, thank you, buddy. Whenever you're there, and guys, be, be paying attention to this text because I have a follow-up question that directly pertains to it. Whenever you're ready, Michael. Very good. Okay, so my follow-up question, based off that text, what primary features do we see in this passage, and how should these features apply to the church today? How should they be seen in the church today? They gathered regularly, right? So that's one, that's one feature. Uh, the church should be a people who gathers regularly. Um, that's reiterated in Hebrews, as we've talked about before, um, and other places throughout the New, uh, the Old and New Testament, for that matter. Uh, the, the primacy and importance of gathering as the people of God. So, very good wit. Um, what else do we see? Breaking bread. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, um, the breaking bread reference. Some interpreters see that as having meals. Uh, but most see it as the, a, a reference to the Lord's Supper. That, that's a reference to the Lord's Supper being administered in the context of the church. It can go either way. It could be a combination of the two even. Um, so, you know, I think if, if it's, let's just say it's a combination of the two because there are strengths and weaknesses to both views. The, the, the church should be regularly administering the Lord's Supper. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 11. Paul talks about that. Um, but at the same time, the church should also kind of piggybacking on what Witt just said. The church should have context where members of that church can get together for fellowship, to eat together, to, 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 to get to know one another, to be a part of one another's life. Church just isn't coming together for corporate worship. That's the most important aspect of the local church. But there's also the life-on-life -life dimension of the local church. Members of the local church should be intimately invested in one another. And part of that can very practically be facilitated through fellowship events, meals, and, and the like. We're actually going to have a fellowship meal this Wednesday for Thanksgiving. So um, it's a great opportunity uh, to model at least one potential aspect of this feature that we see here 
in Acts 2. What else do we see in this passage? What other features? Prayer. Prayer. Church needs to be a people that pray, both individually and also corporately. It's why uh, Brother Robert leads us in prayer. That's why I lead us in prayer. That's why Alec leads us in prayer during various times of corporate worship. There needs to be corporate offerings of prayer by the church. That was modeled in the first century. It's been modeled by every faithful church over the past 2,000 years. Okay, so we've talked about breaking of bread. We've seen prayer. We've seen the the regular gatherings, which is uh, fellowship. What else is there? What's that? New people coming or, or people being saved, which presupposes that the gospel's going forth, that there's mission, that there's outreach. The church needs to be a people that is invested in community outreach and even state outreach, global outreach, but it starts in the community. Um, it's been well said that the best mission field is right down your street, not necessarily on the other side of the world, because even here in Edna or wherever a local church might be located, There are mission opportunities that the church needs to be eagerly pursuing, that we need to be mindful of, that we need to be invested in. And that, of course, is what we see here in this Acts 2 passage. Michael. Yeah, so they were selfless, right? They they were willing to meet the needs of those, whether in their congregation and... um, even those in the community that might have came out to their mind. You know, the church needs to be concerned with, with coming alongside its members to help them through difficult times. Also needs to do the same to the watching world because we can really bear witness to Christ in that. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, Christ talks about um, how his people are marked by those who, when there were people who were hungry, they gave them food. When they were thirsty, they gave them something to drink. When they were naked, they were clothed. In other words, God's people are modeled by a commitment to to ministering to the felt needs of others, whether Christian or non-Christian, to be inhospitable. Christ healed, um, he ministered to both believers and unbelievers. He was gracious and merciful to all people, and the church should model that as well. Any other observations from that text? I think you have got almost everything that I had. There's one other aspect, though, that has not been, or two other that has not been explicitly stated. Okay, yeah, praising God, that, that, was, that was on um, on the corporate worship dimension. Towards the beginning of the text, I'll give you all that hint. Yeah, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, so what do you all think that means? What is meant by the apostles' teaching? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it's what the apostles taught, but what, what would we say that would be today? God's Word, right? So they're teaching on the Old Testament, which at that point they would have had for um, several centuries. They would have had the completed Old Testament for several centuries at that point. But also I would say um, in light of the New Testament era, the first century, the completion of the first century, I would say that also would pertain to what would become the New Testament. Either their oral teaching that was consistent with what's in the New Testament record itself or in the written letters that would ultimately comprise the New Testament by the end of the first century. So for us today, we can devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching by studying the New Testament, which was written either by an apostle or under the supervision of an apostle, or by studying the Old Testament, which is what the apostles themselves would have been teaching as well in that context. So to devote ourselves to the studying of Scripture is fulfilling that verse 42 aspect of this text um, in a post-first century sense. And then one more uh, characteristic there that has not been noted yet. And there is more things we could say about this passage. I mean, isn't this just rich? Yeah, a sense of awe because many signs and wonders were taking place to the apostles. Now, obviously, we're not going to see that take place today. Um, we might see a miracle one time in our life if we're lucky. These people were seeing it happen day after day after day after day. 
It was a special foundational period of time in redemptive history. And God's plan for laying the foundation of his church that would be built upon even now to the, to the tw- uh, 21st century. Um, so although that is not something that we see normatively today, um, it is something that marked these first century Christians in terms of their experience because the apostles were performing miraculous works that bore witness to their authority that Christ gave to them when he called them into the apostolic office. So um, that just about exhausts, at least at the surface level, the main primary features that can be deduced from Acts 2, 42 to 47. Does anyone have any questions or additional comments on that passage before we move on? Very good. Well, uh, continuing here in my teacher's guide, Buznitz says that chapters 3 and 4 highlight the bold preaching ministry of Peter, who proclaimed the gospel with undaunted courage. As noted above, it is remarkable to consider Peter's transformation after just a few months. The disciple who denied the Lord three times at Passover faces the Jewish leaders after Pentecost with unwavering boldness. Two texts that we're going to use to see this transformation. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. I'm willing to read that because it is a longer text. Um, But I do need a volunteer to read Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. And Sai, you've got that one. I'll take care of Luke. Flip over to Luke 22 in your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 54. All right. I'll go ahead and read that. Having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Verse 59. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with Christ, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Okay, so there's Peter pre-crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's Peter the coward. Now we're going to look at Peter the courageous, Acts 4, 8 through 12. Amen. So just if I could, by, by quick way of um, observation. So Peter and the disciples are being put in jail, and they're being asked by the Jewish religious leaders of that time not to speak about Jesus, because they're seeing all these people getting saved and leaving Judaism to become Christians, and, it, and, and they see it as a threat to them because they were the ones who were directly responsible for putting Christ to death. So not only, does Jesus, not only does Peter say, no, we're going to keep preaching about Jesus, but look at verse 10. He says, you crucified him. So he's, he's not only saying, we're going to go and preach about him regardless of what we might be, um, whatever we might face, however 
difficult our lives might become for testifying to Jesus Christ, we're going to keep performing signs and wonders in his name. We're going to keep proclaiming his name. And by the way, you guys are the ones who are responsible for putting him to death. So you want to talk about courageous. Here's a man who several months before these events took place, he's denying Jesus. He wants nothing to do with identifying with him. He's afraid for his life. I don't know the man, says Peter. Don't associate me with him. I don't want to be put to death like he's likely going to be at this time. Peter knew he was probably going to die. Jesus was was in big trouble at that point. But now, fast forward to the events that take place in Acts. This is post-Christ being raised from the dead, ascending into glory, the Spirit of God being poured out at the day of Pentecost. And now Peter is saying, we're going to proclaim Christ no matter what. There is no fear. There is no uh, timidity. He is all in at this point for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, my question in light of those observations is this. What does the transformation of Peter teach us about the nature of the sanctification of the believer? Is sanctification slow, gradual, immediate, or a combination of those? Think about Peter. Think about his journey. And then think about broadly the journey that we all go on in our sanctification, in our conformity into Jesus' moral character. What do you think is true about that process? Are we immediately made into the moral likeness of Jesus? Okay, no. Do we spend a whole life and never make, pro- uh, never make progress in our sanctification? No, that's not true either, right? It's gradual, right? There's times where we are more sanctified, we're, we're more quickly sanctified than others. There's times where we might be in, in, a, in a more a slow period of being conformed into the moral character of Christ. But regardless of which season you might be in, all Christians will be in an ongoing, gradual progress of being conformed into Jesus, into Jesus' moral character. If you're a Christian, you're never just going to be totally stagnant. You're never going to have a, a period of your life where you're not at least, even if it's minuscule, inch by inch progress, you're never going to have a season where you're just not being made into Jesus' likeness. It might not be noticeable by you at some points in your life. It might be incredibly noticeable by you at certain points in your life. You're going to go through highs and lows in your journey as a Christian. But know this, God is faithful. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God will perfect, He will bring to completion His work of sanctification that He's begun in you at the moment of your salvation, at the moment of of your justification, at the moment you first came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, God will bring you into conformity to Christ's moral likeness. And that's exactly what he did with Peter. Peter had a radical transformation, no doubt. Some of you guys might experience that. Some of you all might just have just a very methodical, progressive improvement over the years. Regardless of God's plan for you, regardless of what the case might be for your life, know this, God will be faithful to make you like Jesus over time, and he'll do whatever means necessary to accomplish that goal. Well, Acts 5 opens with the account of Ananias and Sapphira, which is a sobering illustration of how serious God is about purity and worship. The remainder of chapter 5 highlights the continued courage of Peter and his fellow apostles. Significantly, in Acts 5.29, Peter tells the religious leaders, we must obey God rather than men. Okay. So question for group discussion. According to Acts 5.29, that little phrase, we must obey God rather than men. When do you think Christians have a moral responsibility to disobey civil government. When is it okay for a Christian 
to disobey the government. And when is it, or if I could say it even more tersely, when is it morally required? Wit. Yeah, whenever the government causes you to do something that is chapter and verse sin, chapter and verse disobedience of what God has commanded in His Word. So if the government were to come and say, hey, you're not allowed to sing during worship, we wouldn't be able to obey the government. They said, hey, you can't preach the, if you can't preach the gospel here, well, sorry, we have to preach the gospel. We're commanded in the Bible to. Lily. Yeah. And when it's like different views of mm-hmm. when it's okay to not go to the For sure. Yeah, there's definitely overlap there with what we talked about Wednesday. Ellie, did you have something? I was going to say. Oh, did Cy have his hand up? Did you have anything? Wit stole it. Thanks a lot, Wit. You stole everybody's thunder. Uh, yeah, so guys, like, I mean, it, it's, it's quite simple. Um, in fact, it's very interesting. In Romans 13... Paul is arguing that Christians should bend over backwards to submit to government if what they're requiring isn't causing you to commit sin. However, and think about who he was writing that to. Again, Paul's writing those, um, th- those, p- those points of instruction. He's writing those when that church is under the reign of Nero who was putting Christians to death for their faith. So if Paul could instruct those Christians to bend over backwards to do what the government tells you to do if it doesn't cause you to sin under Nero's reign, how much more should we bend over backwards as Christians to bear witness to God and to his kingdom and to his word to bend over backwards in the United States of America with all the freedoms and all the blessings that we enjoy and take for granted on a day-to-day basis? I mean, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If they were commanded to do it in their hostile context, then of course we should expect us to do those same things. We should do those same things. To submit to the government insofar that submission, that obedience, doesn't lead us into sin. Now, Acts 5.29 though, this is an important caveat. If the government or any authority commands you to commit a chapter in verse sin. We're not talking about a gray area. We're not talking about something that's not clearly forbidden in Scripture. We're talking about a chapter in verse, black and white, clear as day, command in Scripture. If the government or any authority ever tells you to disobey that principle, then you have a moral right to disobey it. And that's the example we see from the apostles in Acts 5.29. Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Moving on now. In Acts 6, the needs of the growing church in Jerusalem reach the point where the apostles select seven helpers to assist the congregation. These seven men include Stephen and Philip. Though their role is slightly different, these men function in some ways like the first deacons. By taking care of important logistical tasks, these seven men freed up the apostles to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Okay, so my question for group discussion. Given the testimony of Acts 6 in reference to these deacons, these men whose responsibilities were to free up the apostles' task for the work of ministry, for preaching, and for prayer, based on those observations taken in conjunction with the primary function of deacons in the church, how are deacons supposed to function primarily? And how does that differ from other church offices? So what we need to do to answer this question as we need to go to 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 10. And we need to compare that 
with the seven verses that come before it and with Titus 1, 6 through 9. So to do this, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It's a longer passage. I need somebody to read 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 10. Hannah. And I'll need somebody to read Titus 1, verses 6 through 9. Ellie, thank you. All right, let me go ahead and read the 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7 text. Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An elder, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the elder must not be a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay. Um, Hannah, read those next three verses. Okay. So, if you look at both of those passages, what is the one thing that is present for the quality of an elder that is not mentioned for deacons? It says deacons likewise. So, let me just give you a hint. And... In verse 8, Paul is tying together some of those qualities that he mentioned back in verses 1 through 7 and tying those into what he's talking about deacons in verses 8 through 10. But let's look at this. Let's look at this. Oh, I forgot verses 12 and 13. Um, I'll read that too. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their own households, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I forgot forgot verses 12 and 13. But um, what do we see here? So let's go through it all. Doesn't say anything about a new convert for deacons. That's one difference. Although I would say it's probably not wise um, for a new convert to be a deacon, but it's not explicitly mentioned. What else? Not double tongue. Okay, do you don't think you don't think that was um, that was talked about with um, oh. prudent? So being wise with what you say, being conservative with what you say. It's a good thought. We see husbands of only one wife. We see managers of their own household. Um, Yeah, obviously, and elders would have, um, elders would, would obviously tend to the needs uh, in the church, and deacons could obviously witness outside the church. But yeah, no, it's very interesting, because remember, in Acts 6, the whole purpose for those men being appointed as deacons was so the apostles, and then later the men that the apostles would raise up that would become elders, so they could focus on preaching, 
prayer and I would say in the in the ministry of the word that reference is is not just ministry of the word in the church but also outreach. So yes, Lisa, I think that's I think that is a I think that's definitely a quality there. Again, not to say deacons can't do outreach, not to say that elders aren't concerned with what happens in the church. But um, if I may maybe put some, some, um, clar- some, I don't know if clarification is the right word, but the deacons are, the deacons are focusing on serving the body. They're, they're focused on being servant-minded in the context of their local church. Not to say elders aren't, but those elders, they're, they're, they're overseeing evangelism, missions, community outreach. Um, that's something the apostles would have been doing as well at this time. So yes, I think there's definitely um, a, some some value there in that observation. Now let's flip over to Titus one six through nine, and just so you know, there's one other thing I wanted us to draw attention to that was in the first Timothy three passage, but it, it'll be even more specified in this text. And, um, we'll talk a little bit about it. Sai, are you reading this one? Who's reading the Titus passage? Oh, Ellie, go for it. What do you see here that's really stressed in this passage in Titus 1? Obviously, we have the character qualifications that are basically reiterated verbatim by Paul, as we found in the first Timothy letter. But what do you really see stressed in this Titus passage? And it kind of gets back to that one aspect that we didn't highlight from the first Timothy 3 passage, but I think it's really spelled out well here. What was really emphasized in this Titus passage that wasn't necessarily emphasized in the First Timothy three? Verse nine. Now, what is verse nine teaching us? Very good. So, what do you think that's saying about an elder? Yeah, so they need to know the Word of God well so they can teach it and so they can refute error. Now, here's what I wrote down. This is very important. I, I, wanted, to, I, I wanted you guys to, to see the observation. I was trying not to, to hint at it too much back in 1 Timothy 3. And, and Lisa actually touched on uh, one of the observations I made in preparations for today regarding um, deacons, but... Here's what I wrote down. Um, Deacons are to minister to the church in areas of service. So as Lisa pointed out, they're focusing on how they can effectively serve and minister to the, the, the daily, weekly, monthly, and even annually needs of the church. This does not mean that they can't teach. doesn't mean that they don't teach Sunday school. It doesn't mean that they don't do outreach. It doesn't mean that they don't do evangelism or anything like that. But what it's saying, and when I say what it's saying, what we find here in these primary texts in the New Testament regarding the role of of deacons, the primary function of the deacon is to be a godly man who is dedicated to serving the church. That's exactly what we saw those men exemplifying in Acts 6. When the apostles appointed Stephen and the other deacons in Acts 6, They selected godly men who had a heart for service. They were to do everything in their power 
to meet the felt needs of the Christians so the apostles could go out and do outreach. So they could go and teach the Word of God. Doesn't mean those deacons that were appointed never did those things. In Acts um, 7, Stephen gives one of the best sermons recorded in the entire New Testament. Obviously, Stephen had the gift of teaching. So deacons can certainly teach. They can certainly do outreach. If they have the giftedness and the desire, they should definitely do those things. But their primary focus should be godliness and serving the church that God has placed them in. That's the function we see observable here from the earliest deacons back in Acts 6. And we see that reiterated by Paul in those qualifications that are mentioned there in 1 Timothy 3. Does that make sense? Great. All right, well, as I kind of hinted at here, Busnitz, continuing here in my teacher's guide, notes that in addition to serving the needs of the church, Stephen, one of the first deacons, was a bold evangelist. His preaching led to his arrest by the religious leaders. In Acts 7, he preached a powerful sermon while standing trial. Outraged by Stephen's message, the leaders responded by dragging him outside the city and stoning him to death. Those who killed Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. The word martyr comes from a Greek word meaning witness. That's one of the blanks there in your workbook. The word martyr comes from a Greek word meaning witness. Martyrs are witnesses to Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. And if I just may say this, if you've never read Acts 7 before, read that today or sometime this week. Go read Stephen. Look at how he understands and applies Old Testament truth to the work and person of Jesus Christ. It is rich. Acts 7 is rich. It is a profoundly theological treatise that Stephen gives, literally facing his upcoming death by stoning. And he delivers it with passion. He delivers it with compassion. He's he's passionate in the delivery. He's compassionate in his heart for those who are about to put him to death because of their blindness, because of their hostility to to the truth of the gospel and to the person and work of Christ. He wants them to be saved. He says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Just like Jesus did at the cross. So you see both a a theologically rich sermon, you see a passionate delivery of it, and you see a compassionate and, and, and just heartfelt love and concern for those who are about to put him to death. It's a remarkable portion of Scripture and, and can't stress enough the value in reading that if you haven't done so before. And even if you have, it's, it's always good to, to remind ourselves of familiar places in Scripture. But continuing... Um, After Stephen's martyrdom, Christians began to scatter from Jerusalem. As they did, they took the gospel with them to places like Samaria and other regions throughout the Roman Empire. In this way, God used the death of Stephen and the resulting persecution to scatter believers throughout the Roman world, thereby beginning to fulfill the Great Commission. So there are three texts that we're going to read to to see how the gospel begins to spread throughout the book of Acts to Samaria and then to other regions throughout the Roman Empire. I need a volunteer to read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, Michael. Uh, Acts 11, verses 19 and 20, Wit, And then um, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Lily. And that's a, I know it's a familiar passage being the Great Commission, but again, it's good to remind ourselves of familiar passages, especially in regards to how the gospel is going forth to different parts of the world. It's a good reminder of what these first century Christians would have had at the forefront of their minds as they sought to take the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the hub in Jerusalem and to all the different parts of the Roman world. So Acts 8, verses 1 through 5. Going from house to 
house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Okay, very good. So, um, how do we see in just this text, how do we see God's sovereignty in using a, 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 a wicked, sinful act to accomplish a greater good? What do we see here? What do you think? Michael? Yeah. So what? And and um. And, and what are they teaching when they when they get scattered? Uh, the, gospel. the gospel. That's right. Do y'all see that? So think about this, guys. Stephen, a faithful man of God. He's put to death. He bears witness to Christ. He's put to death, and then immediately, all chaos breaks loose. There's a persecution. The, the church in Jerusalem is forced to scatter throughout the Roman world. You've got Saul, who's a young, zealous Pharisee, who's ready to go and get Christians to throw in prison or to execute. Um, you've got all this sin, all this wickedness taking place. From a human perspective, things would have looked really dreadful because Jerusalem was the hub. It was the center of the early church. And now these people are being forced to spread and abandon their home because they're being persecuted for their faith, things from a human level looks terrible. And yet, God in His infinitely wise providence uses that persecution, uses the scattering of His people to fulfill the purpose for which Acts was written back in Acts 1.8, to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then eventually to all the ends of the earth. My friends, God's providence encompasses both righteousness and sin and He works it all together in such a way that it perfectly accomplishes His eternal good purposes. What man means for evil, God means for good. Genesis 50, 20. And this is a remarkable picture of that. And by way of personal and practical application to us, just because things might look helpless in your life in a particular relationship or circumstance, that does not mean that all is lost and that you're without hope. In fact, on the testimony of the Word of God, God is in the process of using that difficulty to accomplish your eternal spiritual good and ultimately to supremely magnify and glorify Himself. That should be a great encouragement to us. That Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him, for those He has called according to His purpose. If you're a Christian, everything in your life, no matter how hopeless it might seem, no matter how difficult it might be, God has a plan in that circumstance, in that trial, to accomplish your eternal good and to accomplish His supreme glory in doing so. What a comfort that is for the believer. Well, Acts eleven nineteen and 20, um, getting out further from Samaria at this point in the Acts narrative. Uh, who is going to read that text? Acts eleven nineteen and 20. So then those who were scattered because of that persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the word of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent part of it off to Antioch. Very good. Let me stop there. So, um, really quickly, it's interesting. The next chapter, um, Peter's going to have a vision. It's going to be signifying that God has a plan and a purpose for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out beyond just Jews and go to the Gentiles as well. And what we see here in verse 19, I think it's, it's a really um, clear illustration, I would say, of our temptation. 
How tempted are we sometimes to gather in a holy huddle with our own little group of believers, our own little set of friends and family members, and in doing so, we lose sight of our responsibility to go and spread the gospel or biblical truth to others. I mean, these people would have known that Jesus has told them to go and take the gospel outside of just their own Jewish hub, and yet, even as they're being persecuted, even as God is providentially forcing them into these Gentile parts of the world, they still only initially speak to Jews. It takes time before they finally start to realize, hey, we're being spread out to Gentile regions. Jesus has told us to go and make disciples of the Gentiles. Maybe we should go and talk and build relationships with Gentiles so that the gospel can go to the Gentiles. But it takes time. It's a, prog- it's a process. It's, it, it's not an immediate thing. And I, I think that's really interesting to see because we fall victim to the same temptation sometimes, don't we? It's easy to familiarize ourselves only with those who look the way we look, who talk the way we talk, who have the same hobbies that we have. And, and we lose sight of those opportunities God might be giving us to go to others, build relationships with other people, to witness to other people, to serve other people. Um, that's just something that came to mind in light of that text here. And then uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, just a great reminder for us. Hannah? And I kind of just quoted it, but go ahead and read it for us, please. Oh, Lily. Sorry. <laughs> I was in the right region of the room. That's our commission. That was the commission to the earliest disciples, as reiterated in Acts 1.8, and that is our commission. That's the commission for every follower of Christ from the first century until the return of Christ. Now, as I predicted, we're not going to get to Roman numeral 4. Probably we'll only spend next Sunday on Roman numeral 4 because there's just so much so much to, to discuss and to reflect on. But by, uh, by way of conclusion, before we close in prayer, focusing on application, getting to where the rubber meets the road here. Notice that green box in your workbooks. It should say, for discussion, we're going to consider the following questions here. It's a two-parter. It says, in the four Gospels, The disciples often exhibit faith that is frail and faltering. But in the book of Acts, they demonstrate unwavering boldness and resolve. How can we explain the dramatic difference? Practically speaking, how should we emulate their conviction and courage in our lives? So let's start with the first part of that question. How can we explain the dramatic difference that we see in the disciples? I mean, most notably with Peter as we talked about. What's the difference? How do we account for that? Yeah, what's, what do you think that, that cause would be? I mean, there is no human explanation, right? People don't just wake up someday. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. People don't just wake up someday and think, hey, you know what? I'm not afraid to die anymore, so I'm going to go and, and, and put myself in positions where there's a great likelihood that I get martyred for my profession of faith and for my testimony of the gospel. And Hannah, you hit the nail right on the head. It's sanctification. It's God's work in and through the believer that propels them to boldness, propels them into action. It causes them to lose sight of the entanglements and the cares of this world and reorients their thinking in such a way to where now everything that matters is storing up treasure in heaven. I'm in the world, I'm not of the world. Heaven is my home. That's my focus. 
That's what's going to drive and motivate me. That's exactly right. Now, second part of the question. Practically speaking, how should we emulate their conviction and courage in our lives? How can we as Christians ensure that we are not being cowardly, just to, to, to put it very succinctly, echoing Peter? think I could have said it any better or that I don't I don't think anybody could have put that any better um, it's remembering that we are we are ambassadors for Christ we're his possession we're we're God's adopted children he holds us in his hand but ultimately we, we don't need to concern ourselves with reputation with persecution with hardships because we entrust ourselves to a faithful Father in heaven who will do what's right. And we need to concern ourselves more with the eternal um, state of other people, the spiritual state of other people, than that of our own. Hannah, that was a marvelous um, statement there. By way of conclusion, I just want to read from Philippians 1, 21 through 24. This is a passage that for me, this is something that, at least for me, I, I want to have this stamped upon my eyeballs. I want this to be the bedrock of my life as a Christian. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, but I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. In other words, what's Paul saying? I desire to be with Christ. That's the, that's the greatest blessing for any Christian. To be with Christ and not in this world. However, while I'm here, I'm going to devote everything in my life to serving Christ, to serving Christ's people, and pouring myself out for the service of others. Whether it be ministering to the needs of Christians or whether it be witnessing to those who are unbelievers so that they might ultimately become saved. And my friends, I trust that if we can get our minds on those truths more frequently, we'll find ourselves being more bold, more courageous, and more content in whatever circumstances God might lead us through in this life. But with that in mind, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. And then we got about four minutes till service. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. God, help us to always remember that heaven is our home. You've called us to be your ambassadors. We are your adopted children in Christ. We're on this world for a purpose and for a season that you've appointed from before the foundation of the world. And God, it is our greatest desire to be good stewards of whatever that calling might be. And Lord, in order for us to do that, in order for us to be good and faithful servants, we ask, God, that we would routinely meditate on the truth that our life is not our own, that our calling is for your kingdom and not for personal magnification, not for personal gain, not for personal leisure or comfort in this life, but Lord, to serve you to minister to the needs of others, to witness to those in this world who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that they might taste and see that you are good, so that they might come to know the fullness of life that only Christ can provide and the forgiveness of sins that is freely offered to all who call upon his name in faith. Father, give us that mindset over and over again by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit so that we might not be timid so that we might not be
cowardly so that we might not be ashamed of our faith or our identification with Christ, but rather, Lord, that we might be bold and compassionate for the souls of others, willing to do whatever it takes to glorify you and to see others come to know you in a personal saving relationship. I thank you for this Sunday school class. I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for the families that they represent. I thank you for First Baptist Church of Edna and for the work you're doing here in our church through good times and bad. Father, may your light shine brightly in our church and in our lives so that this community would be transformed and that it would never be the same as a result of your work in and through us. Bless us now as we leave this place. Help us to be prepared to exalt you wherever you call us into this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.